0: This is the Mind and Wellness Podcast. We're raising mental health awareness by discussing the little things you can do to enhance your life, covering topics like anxiety, depression, and how to handle life's pressures. With your host, Quinn Maroney, and myself, Scott Quinnell, together we will show you how to improve your mind and wellness. This podcast is brought to you by Midwest Center for Personal and Family Development. No matter what, there are people to help. For more information, visit MentalHealthInc.com. That's MentalHealthInc.com or call them at 651-647-1900. That's Mm 651-647-1900.
1: Welcome to episode two of the Mind and Wellness Podcast with your co-hosts, Quinn Moroni and Scott Quinell. Today, we're gonna to be talking about crises. The most common, of course, being a midlife crisis. And also, when do we seek out therapy with a midlife crisis or whenever in life when we're feeling like something has hit us like a ton of bricks and we don't know what's coming next and we don't know how to deal with it. So let's talk first about the most common, midlife crisis. Scott, what are some key elements of a midlife crisis?
0: So, we'll start we'll start off with just a simple a simple fact. It typically happens between the ages of 45 to 55. Right? And so how do you what what do you feel during a midlife crisis is confinement. You feel confined with with your work life, with your home life, whatever it may be, you just have a feeling of confinement and isolation.
1: Confinement, isolation, and it kind of comes on without any notice, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, it'll hit you like a train.
1: <laughs> we got trains. We got tons of bricks. Lots of things that are hitting us today. How do people overcome a midlife crisis?
0: So there are there are some people that experience a midlife crisis that will make drastic life changes, and that is just that's just typical stats.
1: So that like divorce,
0: divorce, major career changes. Whatever it may be,
1: that's interesting. Because, as you said, career changes. I was thinking about my grad school program, and it was, you know, a lot of people in their twenties, but then quite a big group of, you know, men and women in their forties and fifties who were working in kind of a similar field but wanted a, a change.
0: Yeah, and I can relate to that too. Um, in college, for me, I have countless amount of classes where. People either didn't go to college and just worked their way through life so far. They, they've they been working at stores, factories, whatever. And now they're coming back to school in their 40s and their 50s to learn about health, to learn pretty much exactly about what we're talking about right now. And that just blows my mind. That just blows my mind that how many people actually do experience this and how how people handle a crisis situation?
1: Sure. So what I take from what you're saying is that, okay, I'm going to start in a psychological perspective. So there's social determinants of health, meaning that people handle a mid- midlife crisis differently because there are different foundations for different people. For example, someone who has a stable job, stable housing, um, stable food sources, a spouse or a partner that's taking on half of the financial responsibilities, all of those things give you financial and emotional stability. It makes me think of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. So if you're familiar, it starts with like a physiological basis. So if you have food, water, sleep, like a homeostatic system in place Then you have space in your life, in your brain, in your processing for love and belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization, and there's another one, safety. So when you're thinking about all those elements in a midlife crisis, of course people handle it differently because they have different determinants of social health. Additionally, people can get through and do obviously do get through midlife crises because it is a stage of development. So when we think of development, we often... Think of early childhood, newborn babies, but really development happens throughout the lifespan. So in a developmental stage of adulthood, which is in the Erickson stages of development, it's called generativity versus stagnation, where you're kind of looking at, am I generating wealth, confidence, status, relationships, or am I feeling more stagnant in my life, feeling stuck? And that stagnation part is the midlife crisis. So when you're, when you're getting to a point where you're trying to work through this, it makes sense that people handle it differently, not only from their foundational status of um, health, but also from a developmental standpoint.
0: We're always learning. We're always learning. We're always changing. We're always developing.
1: Yeah. So then what does therapy look like from a midlife crisis standpoint or really when you're having a crisis in life? You're considering a lot of different elements. When people come into my office and I ask them some basic questions because in a first visit, you're really collecting a lot of assessment information from someone.
0: Creating rapport a little bit.
1: Yeah, creating rapport and what we have to do in a, within a first visit, because insurance is a little B, is... um create what's called a diagnostic assessment. So you're really gathering a lot of history from someone, gathering their background information, any sort of trauma that they've been through. So what most often happens when I ask someone if they've been through a traumatic event or any sort of major stressors in their life, some people have a direct answer, which is what I would call big T trauma. Uh, Big T trauma is things that you can very easily identify and that are socially identifiable traumas Sexual abuse, neglect, malnourishment, any of those elements where you can very clearly point to that.
0: So with people that, just a little side note, so with people that come in and talk about usually going through a midlife crisis, do they typically have um, something happen in their life early on or or is this their first thing they've ever, this is their first time seeing a therapist really?
1: It kind of varies. Sometimes with um, any sort of crises in the midlife area (laughs) is um, something big has happened, like a divorce, or their kid isn't getting along with them anymore, or um, they lost their job, things like that. And then that kind of spirals into something bigger. With big T trauma, you know, maybe someone comes in and says, yep, I went through this horrible trauma throughout my life or I experienced this one very specific thing and then there's another area of trauma that people have m- more difficulty identifying which I would call little t trauma and that's anything that felt like too much too fast that can be in childhood or in adulthood any stage of development trauma can happen
0: and that that kind of goes back to where a, cr- a crisis like that might might hit you like a ton of bricks
1: right exactly in any circumstance a diagnosis isn't something to be feared. Lots of people think that a diagnosis is something that sticks with you forever and that it determines who you are as an individual. In reality, the only person that sees that diagnosis is your therapist and your insurance company. So, it doesn't mean anything other than to guide your practice in therapy and to give you some answers.
0: So, when people come to you and are a little nervous about about seeing a therapist and they're nervous about the the diagnosis and how it it will affect them. Is that, well, first off, is that common?
1: It's relatively common, especially with older adults. So midlife to older adults, it's definitely more common.
0: They kind of think of like it's something that will go on their record, something that will kind of stick with them a little bit.
1: Yeah, or even just be used against them from family members or their boss, anything like that.
0: So what do you say to someone when, when they're worried about that?
1: Basically what I just said that the only people that see it are myself and the insurance company that you literally by law can't be discriminated against based on a mental illness and that it does. It only means that you meet criteria for something. It doesn't mean that that is who you are. You are not bipolar. You are someone who has bipolar.
0: Our last topic is a question I I see a lot in today's younger adult, uh, population, and it's it's about how social media affects mental health, and so in today's age, social media affects mental health in a positive, and in negative ways, and so there there's a lot of different sides um to this topic, and the one thing, especially in teens, is is that they're always looking for self satisfaction or or getting noticed by others and that's typically through likes likes comments and so if someone gets a negative comment that will tear them down a little bit
1: which is very common like anyone who gets negative feedback in a performance review or whether it's on social media that's a very common and normal response because that's self preservation You want to focus on the bad in order to, your little lizard brain is like in order to survive. When I see uh, young adults and social media affecting their mental health, it's most often in comparison. So that comes up with eating disorders, body dysmorphia, um, those areas. The first thing I tell any teenager or any young adult, anyone struggling with an eating disorder, or even just like constantly thinking about food, constantly thinking about body image, is to unfollow anyone that makes you feel like shit.
0: Exactly. And th- that's the thing is that most people, when, when they're at that age, they see those Instagram influencers or um, in my field, it's those exercise gurus and they look perfect, picture perfect in their mind. They look like the ideal body. Um, but there's a lot of things uh, behind the scenes that a lot of people don't understand, especially for... Specifically, when I was younger, when I was in high school, a lot of kids were interested in like the bodybuilders and, and just the big meatheads just looking scary, just like that's what the ideal man should look like. But obviously, there's a lot of things behind the scenes. Some of those guys are juicing. <laughs> Some of those guys are, are sticking a needle in places where the sun don't shine and, and they're using steroids.
1: My family called those people puffers because they look like pufferfish.
0: Yeah, exactly. They're just inflated, and that's that's just what it is. And then there's also people that before they take a picture, and this is something nobody understands um, at at the teenage um, level, is that they get a full workout in and get what's called the pump, and that's the blood flow to the muscles making you look like a, a, a juice jiggly puff. What'd you call it?
1: A pufferfish.
0: A pufferfish. And and so they look bigger than they actually are.
1: Right. On kind of a different note, one pro that I've seen from social media is parenting. New York Times Parenting has a great Instagram and it has a sign up that you can get a newsletter. I think it's a weekly email newsletter from, but other resources from social media being that parents can kind of compare and contrast their experiences to each other. Of course, there's a negative element or a con of that being that comparison can be the thief of joy but there's also this element that parents are able to commiserate with each other
0: and so there's one last thing i want to talk about today and it's for any listener out there that wants to try something new and it is called a social media cleanse so just taking time off of social media and it can it can range from a day it can range from a week or even a month um and it can be Allowing yourself to go on social media for one hour a day, uh, one hour a week, one hour a month, or just not at all for that time frame. Yeah. And so taking a social media cleanse can, can just clear out your mind.
1: For sure. I have a friend who, she's Jewish, so she deletes Instagram and Facebook for Shabbat, which means like Friday to Saturday. And that's kind of a nice break for her. Yep.
0: And that's like Perfect. That's a perfect break. It separates you from social media on the weekends when you can be with friends, family. I'm actually doing one right now. Hey, I'm doing Instagram and Snapchat. I'm, I'm taking it off. I deleted both the apps.
1: I did too. I'm on a staycation right now.
0: Right? And I'm doing it for the whole month.
1: Oh, I did not set a time limit for myself. I just decided that I didn't want to spend any of my vacay scrolling. So...
0: Exactly. Kind of just like sitting on the couch, just seeing what else is going on in the world.
1: <laughs> I've deleted Facebook and I have not had it for years at this point and I don't miss it at all.
0: Exactly. And the biggest tip I can say to like younger people out there is just tell your closest friends, coworkers, uh, teammates, whatever, and just say, hey, uh, if you need anything, here's my number. Shoot me a text. I'm taking some time off of social media.
1: Yeah, people don't miss you as much as you think they
0: will. <laughs> exactly. And you don't need that information as much as you think you do. And with that, thank you for listening to the Mind and Wellness Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Midwest Center for Personal and Family Development or on Instagram at the Mind and Wellness Podcast. And until next time, this is Mind and Wellness.